Bismillah Rahman Rahim. So here we are again. I come to you this time in the name of Allah, the peace, the most merciful, the most beneficent. And uh, this is, of course, Chief Yuya. You're listening to the Chief Yuya podcast. And uh, we have now reached the end of our, our 2020 Ramadan experience for those of us who have uh, participated this year and in particular participated at this this time of the year because uh, not not um, all movements and all organizations participate uh, in Ramadan at the same time. But nonetheless, uh, I trust that you have all made it through, right? Especially for you first timers. I know that uh, there will be some makeup days, but don't feel ashamed about that. Uh, there are more people having to make up days than you might imagine or who may have even come clean and told you. All right. So uh, the thing is, is that um, it's a time for you to work on your own disciplining to make sure that you can actually get through things and you, you can understand the things that you can live without. And as you've probably noticed, uh, the last couple of days, it became much easier. Sure, I'm sure you had certain fantasies throughout. And man, when this is done, I'm going to go get some of this. I'm going to get some of that. And I'm just going to, I'm going to eat in the middle of the day when the sun is out. You may have had those fantasies. Um, but I trust that you use this opportunity to uh, take the focus away from food. And put the focus on self-improvement and self-development because you find that when you're going through these experiences that um, there's a lot of focus on uh, food. <laughs> you, you realize how much throughout the day that we actually think about food and what we're going to eat next and what we just ate and what we're going to eat tonight. And after what the next thing we're going to eat and then what we're going to eat the next day. And I had this for lunch today, but tomorrow I'm going to order some of this and some of that and you realize how much of a um, culture that food has become in our lives. And, um, of course, how time-consuming the uh, pursuit, if you will, for food can actually be. So I just wanted to, um, of course, uh, encourage those of you who were able to participate and to keep up <laughs> you know, with, with the experience of uh, Ramadan. And uh, as I've specified before, it is something that uh, we do in our new. And, um, you know, it's, there's more explanation to come with that at, at some point, you know, as, a par, as, a far, as far as like, you know, what the experience is and why the experience is. And, you know, is it an Arab thing? Are we Arabs now? When you think of Islam, do you think of Arabia? Or do you recognize and understand just like um, uh, when you think of Christ or you think of Krishna uh, or you think of Buddha, you know, uh, sh where your minds should go if you're historically correct. So you'll begin to understand that um, Christ or even uh, Torah and Hebraic scripture did not begin in the 1940s with the creation of uh, the state of Israel. Uh, in the same instance that uh, the understanding of Islam did not begin uh, with re 
recent prophets or recent uh, caliphs in the um, uh, the Arabian Peninsula or the Arabian state. But anyway, so uh, I trust though, nonetheless, it was a good challenge for you all. And of course, we are at Eid and uh, our time for, for feasting is now. And of course, we are not permitted to fast during the time of Eid. Um, but if you have makeup days, then you, you know, you put your time in and you, you commend, you continue to be faithful to that process because you're being faithful to yourself. And, you know, imagine, uh, it's just like the charity that I speak about in the Anu way. Uh, when I say that even poor people should give what, well, what we call in Islam is zakat. Um, but even poor people should give zakat or, or give charity because it speaks to the real abundance that's around us. Sometimes if, if we're not people who travel, we start to really think that we don't have as much as we have. I hear so many people in America talk, I'm poor. I don't have this. I don't have that. You know, I, I've, me, I've traveled a lot. I've seen poverty. I have seen real poverty and, <laughs> For the most part, what you have here in America is not that. Now, there is an impoverished mindset. There is an impoverishment of spiritual development, but there are plenty of resources. I mean, the amount of animals that people throw away has always fascinated me. You know, people will go somewhere, order some chicken, take one bite and throw the rest in the garbage can. It's a whole bird. You just threw away, you know, or recently we've, and still happening, all these different animals, all these different birds and cattle being euthanized because they don't have people to process them. Instead of saying, well, let's put them back into the fields. Of course, they don't come from fields, but you understand what I'm saying? Um, let's build a shelter where we could just keep them in until we're ready, you know, for them to be processed. Or is there something that happens to that chicken after six weeks that the world doesn't need to see. So we got to hurry up and kill them. Because after six weeks, you get to really see what we're growing all this time. Maybe a human air will pop out of its stomach or, you know, to start talking after six weeks, talking English, you know. So um, we got to hurry up and get rid of it after six, six strongs. But anyway, so like I said, I just wanted to give you awesome encouragement. Uh, I'm sure the journey was not easy for you new ones. And I'm sure you did not grunt or holler or do it begrudgingly because in that instance, you didn't really do it. But you fasted cheerfully. And next year, because you will see many, 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 many more, uh, you will do it again cheerfully. And always remember those last 10 days of Ramadan, as I specified in the recent uh, Anu newsletter. Of course, those most of you don't know what I'm talking about. But um, for those of you in the ministry, one of the things that I said is that this last 10 days is when you go and you forgive those who you may have been holding a grudge against or who might have even be holding a grudge against you because you never know. This might be their last Ramadan. It might be your last Ramadan, especially with all of the uh, foolery that's going on on the planet right now. Uh, it's a good time, you know, especially while we're hypersensitive from fasting. Our immune systems are nice and strong because of the fasting. And, you know, we've increased our production of white blood cells. Um, it's an excellent time to really reflect on maybe some of the, the griefs 
and the grudges that you've had with people and to maybe try another round of forgiveness if you can. doesn't mean that you have to now become close friends with the person or the relationship will be as it as it was. Sometimes relationships need to die for something else to come forward. But there certainly can be forgiveness, right? But uh, anyway, so that's 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 our energy I wanted to give towards that. And like I said, I just wanted to give uh, so many a virtual pat on the back, you know, for, for getting through it. Because I know um, if it's your first time, and I've spoken to a lot of people, this year was their first time, especially some of our new, um, our new uh, aspirants wanted to give it a shot. So, and I know some of you didn't make it all the way through. I know some of you ate. <laughs> I know you did, but, um, you know, like I said, um, you make up those days and you, you'll get better. You'll get better at it. Don't worry about it. Um, so I'm going to hit on a couple of things. Um, this is not going to be a, a, a long segment, but, um, you know, I, I remember that I, I mentioned, uh, about a, uh, individual that I said I would touch upon uh, by the name of Abu Bakir. And, and Abu Bakir is actually, that's not, that's really more of a nickname, but um, he was known as, you know, Abu Bakir or the, uh, the, the camel's calf or the camel's calf, but really that's uh, father of camels. Abu, Abu is just like Abba, his father. But, uh, you know, I'm going to touch upon him, but I'm going to touch upon several things at once because uh, I want to show you something that you need to know as it relates to not only um, these very important figures in Islam, but also these important figures in the whole pantheon of human expression that the Creator has decided uh, among so many of us, based on the creator's imagination. And uh, Abu Bakr, like I said, that's not really, it's, it's more of a nickname, father of camels or father of the camel's calf. His name was Ab- Abdullah bin Uthman. And even that that term, Abdullah, uh, was something that was later bestowed to him by the prophet Muhammad. Uh, his name was uh uh, Ab- Abdul Kaba or Ab Kaba, and that means the Abd means uh, a servant or really a slave, and Kaba meaning the servant or the slave of of Kaba, where he was from, um, and later it was the Prophet Muhammad who gave him the name Ab Abdullah or or Abd Allah, the servant or the slave of Allah. But um, his full title was very long. And this is where we get into the importance where uh, if you have read the Anu way, where I speak about names and names and title, titles specifically, and how it is that our, our names should be earned. But, you know, like I said, much longer name that um, this caliph had. And there are. There are people who consider him to be the first caliph. I, I consider him to be the, the second, really, because, again, it was Prophet Muhammad who was the first caliph and Abu Bakr, who was his childhood friend, who I would consider to be the second caliph. And I think it's very significant um, because 
a lot of times when we are seeking to share an understanding about what it is that maybe has been revealed to us, it's very difficult to share those things with those who are close to us because a lot of times we don't have the credibility with them that we should because they know things about us that they that they will capitalize on when it comes time to change something about themselves based on what it is that we know or what it is that they know about us. And in the same instance, like I said, with the name and earning of the name where Abu Bakir's uh, name uh, later became Abdullah, but it was Abd, Abd Kaba, you know, Abd Kaba. And to have your friend, the Prophet Muhammad, to say, no, you were a slave to Kaaba, but now you are a slave or a servant to Allah or Ilah. So to now be called Abdullah, Abdullah ibn Uthman, you know, and like I said, much shorter form of a much longer name. We're not going to say that every time because it's so long. Abdullah ibn Uthman, ibn Amir, ibn Am, ibn Kab, ibn Sadim, ibn Taim, ibn Murah, ibn Kaab, ibn Luya. Kalib ibn Fir. So we're not going to say that every time. So uh, Abu Bakir, the nickname. Uh, but nonetheless, I want to impress upon you the value of a couple of things. And, you know, Abu Kabir was, uh, Abu Bakir, again, was an important figure for many reasons. Uh, but like I said, uh, being that, close friend of the prophet muhammad and there was something very special that cre- that was created there that we often miss out on in our brashness and in our arrogance and something simple you know it was abu bakir who later became the father-in-law to the prophet muhammad even though they grew up as childhood friends uh, he Abu Bakir was actually a rich merchant. Uh, he did very well in terms of, of commerce and business, but he was considered to be a very fair man and a very compassionate man. So the majority of what he earned and what, you know, he, he, he spent a lot of his money on charity. In fact, when he left to begin a campaign with the Prophet Muhammad, uh, the Prophet Muhammad asked him, he said, hey, you know, what about your family, your wife and your family? What are you leaving them? And he said, I'm leaving them Allah and the Prophet. You know, so he didn't have this sense of um, total attachment to the things that he considered that he owned in a material sense. But, uh, you know, I think it's it's very important to understand uh, how we create um these ties and these connections um, from a familial sense. It was the daughter, Aisha, of Abu Bakr, who later became the wife of the Prophet Muhammad. Okay, so one of the things that they did that solidified their relationship and tightened and strengthened the battle of their relationship was that they married their families together. So it was the, the young daughter, um, Aisha, that became the wife of the Prophet Muhammad. And in doing that, uh, it was Abu Bakir who became his father-in-law. 
And a lot of times we miss that today, unfortunately, because we marry so often in secret. And sometimes, of course, and again, understandable, if you are someone who is consciously aware and living and acting on that that conscious awareness, a lot of times it is uh, it is your the, the maybe the family of the person who you are courting who may not necessarily accept you in many instances may not even like you you know and that is something that that we constantly have to deal with so when we think about the idea of marrying the families together uh often it's just not possible and you know i often tell men that's an important thing to consider when you are making a lot of demands as far as what you want in a woman and there's nothing wrong with wanting um, certain things in a woman, but you have to understand sometimes what you're not bringing. And of course, what she's not bringing. If you are joining with a woman and your two families cannot create a cohesive web as one family and again to build upon tribe and build upon, I'm sorry, clan and build upon nation, then you're both missing out on something and your children are missing out on something because the engineers and the politicians and and the doctors and the legal people and the mechanics and the farmers and all of those who have different technical skills or different communal organizing skills or whatever it is that exists on each side of those families, they now cannot create a web with one another if there is not a proper and true joining. But when there is now, you you not only strengthen the bonds, but that lawyer now has a farmer. That farmer now has an, someone who can engineer, who they can trust because we're all related to each other now. So imagine the strength that's now transcribed through those relationships and that's created and that can now serve not only the community, but can serve the, the, the family because of the bonding of marriage. So when Abu Bakr gave his wife, I mean, excuse me, gave his daughter Aisha to the Prophet Muhammad, uh, which became his third wife, and she was actually his youngest one, but his third wife. Now the bond of not only their families, but of their friendship and their brotherhood became even stronger. You see, it became even stronger. So again, Abu Bakr being, uh, we'll say historically the first caliph, but again, I, my perspective is a bit different. Um, to, to succeed, uh, the prophet Muhammad was, of course, uh, a very close friend of his. You know, that's who succeeded him. And, um, he made some very interesting, uh, movements. Uh, it was under his, his command and under his rule that we receive, uh, mm, and again, a little debatable, but we received the compilation of what's known today as the Quran, because uh, during that time, there were people who said, you know, this information may be lost. So we need to document it. And, you know, we need to put this together in a way so that it can it can hold firm. Uh, so that happened under his caliph and his caliph was only 27 months, his caliphate, uh, caliphate. So he, he only was for about two years, right? But during that time, there was so much that, that he was able to get done in terms of even uh, 
quashing certain rebellions that happened after the death of the prophet because one of the things that happened was there were certain tribes that no longer wanted to pay zakat. Zakat is the charity, is the offering. And there was some of his his people around him that were like, you know, just let them let them do that. Just let them get away away with it for the sake of peace. And he would hear nothing about it. You know, he said, no, no, we're not going to do that because if we allow those concessions, it will slowly erode what we know to be as Islam or what we know to be as this state and the strength that we're building. So we're going to have to stand firm on that. And there were those who who acquiesced to that, you know, and there were some who didn't as well. So there were certain wars that were also fight fought um as well as there were some invaders. And, but I don't want to get off into too much of that just yet because this is not really so much about Abu Bakr. What I'm teaching you here is about character. Abu Bakr was a wealthy, wealthy businessman, but he was known to be a man of great character. You know, that was the thing. So when the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when he transitioned, it was, it was, very obvious to those who had to now put the vote in as to who uh, should lead that it should be Abu Bakr because of the quality of his character, which was even shown at the time when he came into power because uh, it was Umar, which we'll get into, who he was he was a very strong Ogun kind of energy. And when the prophet died, uh, he couldn't believe that the prophet was dead. No one, you know, no one believed that this man or this man died. And uh, Umar was so upset that he said, you know, if anyone says to me that the prophet has died, I will kill them right now on the spot. You see, and it was the prop. It was Abu Bakr who stepped forward and went to a podium and he kind of pushed Umar aside gently. And he said, listen, the prophet is dead. This is what has happened. And what is important for you to understand is that Allah lives. And the prophet Muhammad was a messenger. And messengers live and then they die. But Allah is eternal. And that is where our focus should be. And, you know, in saying that and in expressing that, it was a very important moment uh, for people to understand where the direction of of this agenda and this scheme is going. We're supposed to be pointed towards the creator, not towards people, no matter how great they are, no matter how great they are, you know? So like in the our new way, I write and I say, do not get hung up on the terms, but focus on the concepts. So when you hear Yah, when you hear Israel, Zion, when you hear Allah, Muhammad, you know, Oludumare, Ogun, Oshun, and you, you let your mind go into a place where you're so focused on the terminology that you lose yourself and what's truly being expressed there, you miss the point. You see, you miss the whole point because um, you're staring at the finger that's pointing at the moon and you should be looking at the moon, right? So Abu Bakr was able to bring that back into focus. Now, interesting enough, that same very strong energy of, of Umar, who was like, I'm going to kill anyone who who says that the prophet has died. He became the third caliph. 
after Umar Bakir, which is very interesting because, uh, I'm sorry, Abu Bakir, uh, during that time, it was, you know, when Abu Bakir, like I said, he was, he only reigned for about two years and he became ill and then he transitioned. And during that time, uh, there was concern amongst the advisors, his advisors, because they were saying, who will go next? Who will be the next caliph? So Abu Bakir said, okay, well, you go and you go, you talk, you talk about it amongst yourselves. This is when he was transitioning. And then you come back to me, uh, with an answer. And what he was thinking is that they would choose his successor among one of them, among the advisors. And when they came back, they said, you know, we don't know who to choose. So we need you to do it, uh, for them. For, for, for us. And Abu Bakir chose Umar. And Umar, his name was Umar ibn al-Khattab. You know, and no one was happy about that. And I'm going to tell you why. Let me explain who, who Umar was. Umar, a very interesting person. He was a, a wrestler. And he was a very hard man. Also a merchant, successful merchant. And in the beginning, before he before he converted to Islam, he was a staunch opponent to Islam to the point that he wanted to kill the Prophet Muhammad. That's how much he was against Islam, according to our historical records. And, um, you know, but he was, he was known, he was an excellent horse rider, he was a wrestler, and he was a very strong individual. So what happened one day was that he set out to uh, he was going to murder the prophet. And uh, he found out that his sister and his brother-in-law had converted to Islam. So he went over to their home to confront them about this. And he found them in the moment, in, in the middle of a lesson being taught things about Islam. And he went into a rage and he he, he beat up his brother-in-law and he started smacking around his sister and she started bleeding. And in that moment, he felt he felt bad and he stopped. So then he then he started to listen. He said, okay, okay, so what is this about? What is Islam about? What is this prophet talking about? And there were things that were being said in that moment that allowed him, that softened his heart. And one of which was that finding out that, you know, Allah, there is no God above Allah. And that softened his heart and he started to listen and he started to learn, right? So eventually he he converted to Islam, you know. But I should also add that he read the Quran for himself and before he read, he went and took a bath first. He bathed himself, he cooled himself off. Very strong Ogun energy with uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab. He bathed himself off and then he came back and he began to read the Quran. And read what was, you know, or read not so much the Quran, but he began to read, you know, the, 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 the testimonies and the documents and okay, and listen. And with a cool head, he was able to process this is, this is a good thing. So he was the same one again. Um, when the prophet transitioned, he was like, anybody says the prophet transitioned in front of me, I will kill them. Right. So when he, was chosen by Abu Bakr, many of the men were concerned 
because they were saying, you know, he's he's too rough. He's got too much ogun in him. You know, he, he's a he's a very hard energy, and um, we don't we don't necessarily want to be under his rule because he's such a strong person. And you know, um, he was aware of what uh, the men were feeling. You know, the people of Medina, how they were feeling about about him. And, you know, what kind of uh, how he was known in terms of his toughness. And, you know, he made it clear and he, and he, you know, he addressed the people and he said, you know, I, I'm the one who Abir Bakir said, Abu Bakir said, who needs to govern over you and to be your, your next uh, caliph. And I want you to know that I've softened myself in order for me to properly rule you and to properly govern you. But if anyone seeks to oppress you or transgress against you, you will see my strength come forth again. You know, um, and he said, I will put my own face in the dirt to defend you righteous people. And it was very important, you know, it, matter of fact, let me go to Abu Bakir back for a second. It was Abu Bakir that established uh, what we call um, codes of conflict or the codes of war. You know, so there were certain things that, uh, you know, he specified that pretty much stand to today that you ought not do in the times of war. You know, one of them, for instance, is you should not kill women or or elderly people. You know, he also said that... Uh, if there, if you're going into a land and you have conquered the land, do not cut down the fruit trees, but allow them to stand because those are those are trees that you can eat from later, right? So there was a series of things that he had he had spoken about that became kind of he became known for as far as um, you know, like I said, uh, codes of conflict. Like these are the things that we will not do. Uh, going forward and he even spoke about you may find people have spent their life in monasteries you know as we know it's like monks do not kill monks that's very different from what you see amongst the viking clans who they they went in for the monks you know uh when when they came into uh europe uh they that's who they went to first practically you know but nonetheless you know he he established some of these codes and there were there were more of them as far as like, you know, um, how people would be treated, you know, going going forward. So we go back to Abu. I'm, I'm sorry. We go back to um, Umar being in, you know, he made it clear that I'm still a strong man, but I will soften myself for you. I, I understand what your concerns were. And he was so essential to the, again, the establishment of the Islamic State, uh, very similar to Abu Bakr. Uh, he, he was able to get so much done. But before we get into that, if I even get into that, um, you know, like I said, he increased people's money, increased salary. He, he took nothing from them. He established a police force. You know, he did so many things. Um, he conquered lands that, and more so people who were trying to conquer them. 
you know, including uh, ancient, uh, well, not so ancient, but Egypt or Kemet. But um, he also promised that he would not send armies out to be destroyed. You know, a lot of rulers do that. You know, they, they'll send armies out to, to either make a point or to show force because they just don't care. You know, a great example, if you look at the movie Glory with Denzel Washington and Morgan Freeman and Matthew Broderick um, and Andre, uh, I can't remember his last name right now. But um, nonetheless, you look at a movie like that and you see like the glory was we're going to go and we're going to try to take this fort, which they didn't take anyway. And we're all going to, half of us are going to die in the process. But it was um, Umar Ibn was like, no, we're not going to do, I'm not going to send soldiers out on missions like that. And I, he also made sure not that soldiers were never kept out for extended periods from their families. So there was a lot of fairness there. There was a time when, I mean, it was so many things he did. I could go on and, you know, give it a full history lesson. But I, I will leave that to your own scholarship. But there was a there was a time when it was called the the time of ashes, and um, it was basically there was a drought and famine in the land, and um, the people were were doing so poorly at a certain time. And I have to say at a certain time because um, as Umar expanded the empire, uh, one of the things that uh, his predecessor had uh, established and which had been established by Prophet Muhammad was that there was a, uh, we'll call it a stipend that was paid out to the people regularly. So basically as the nation expanded, the wealth of that expansion was not just uh, paid towards the aristocracy. So it wasn't just the higher caste that benefited from the expansion, but all citizens were given a stipend. And when Umar came into power, he actually increased the stipend, right? So if if the government or we do well, we all do well, you know? So he, and even like I said, if there was a soldier who was kept out for too long or did not return, he then took it upon himself to be the caretaker of that soldier's wife. And he also cared for the soldier's children. So no one was left um, without support or protection. And there was a time, it also should be noted with Umar, was that he never moved with bodyguards, which I found very interesting. Of course, he was known uh, not to be one to mess with, but nonetheless, you know, no one is... uh, hmm. I can't say no one is Superman, but no one is is impenetrable. But um, he would often walk the streets, especially at night, um, by himself. And he would do that because he wanted to be closely in tune with the condition of his people. And a lot of times he would give charity as a cot to the people in need, but he would do it in an anonymous way because he would just be walking the streets at night and um, people would would maybe not know who he was. But during this time called the Year of Ashes, uh, people were tested. You know, like I said, there was famine and things like that. And certain things became unavailable. 
um, you know, like milk and, and things like that. So people would, would basically live off of uh, a little bit of bread dipped in oil. And that is how they sustained themselves for that time. And uh, Umar refused to buy or allow uh, the merchants to sell things at inflated prices. So, you know, of course, we, we often fall into the idea that, you know, as demand increases, the prices shall increase. But this was not not allowed. And during this time, uh, Umar would eat bread dipped in oil because his whole uh, theorem on that was that how can I truly be concerned and understand what my what my subjects are going through if I do not go through the same thing? So he would eat what the ordinary people would eat, right? Um, so. There was a, there's a story, and this is this is what we're we're building up to, um, that Umar experienced, or we know about Umar. One night when he was out taking one of his uh, usual walks or or strolls, if uh, we want to call it, uh, he came upon a woman, an old woman, and uh, she had a fire going, and she was preparing what appeared to be food, and there were. A lot of, uh, you know, women. I mean, I'm excuse me. A lot of children around her. There was a there was a, a pot being cooked there, and the children were saying, "I'm hungry, I'm hungry." And she was saying, "Hush, hush. That the food will be uh, prepared soon, and you will be able to eat." And Omar kind of sat at a distance and just looking at what was occurring, or just watching them, and. You know, when she she saw him standing at a time, you know, because he was standing for so long, um, you know, he greeted her, you know, and, and he said, peace unto you, auntie. And she said, if you know, if, if you want trouble, keep moving. <laughs> but if, if you come in peace, then, you know, every everything is fine. So he then approached uh the young, the, uh, the, the, the older woman. And once he approached her, uh, you know, he, he, he was talking to her and, you know, she was still saying, you know, hush children, hush children, you know, like the food is coming soon. The food is coming. So when Umar looked into the pot, he saw that it was a stone in the pot. She was cooking a stone. So he asked her, he said, you know, why, why are you, why are you doing this thing? And she said, well, um, I'm, I'm, I just keep staring the pot and I'm hoping that, um, the children, well, it was like small pebbles in the pot. The children will fall asleep. So basically, uh, I'll just keep staring. And by time they fall asleep, you know, I can just, just, you know, pour the, pour the water out. But I'm basically trying to keep their occupied, their minds occupied until they fall asleep because I have no food for them. Right. Um, and, you know, she began to uh, she, she, you know, she replied and, you know, Umar was asking, like, you know, again, he, it was a response to like the children are crying and children are weeping. And he's saying, you know, why haven't you given, given them what you have here to eat in the pot? Right. So 
um, when she explained that to him, he said, uh, you know, how did you come into this condition? Like what, you know, what happened? And, um, the woman said, I have no friends. Uh, I have no brother. I have no father. I have no husband and I have no kin, you know, or, or kinsmen, you know, so essentially she's saying I'm an uncovered woman completely. You know, uh, I have these children here, but I have no man in my life, you know, and, and I have no friends, right? Now, I know that this is a common condition, even today. I know it because uh, I counsel many people through this condition. But um, this was her situation. So then Umar said to her, you know, well, why didn't you come and bring your situation uh, before Umar, you know, the son of Al-Khattab, uh, so that he could bring you something from the public treasury? And then she said, you know, um, like she began really to curse Umar, not knowing, of course, that she's speaking to Umar, but she began to curse him. You know, and um, saying, you know, I, I hope God rips him down from his throne and this and that. And, you know, and, and I hope his life is not spared and all of these different things. So, like, when Umar heard this, like, he, he began to shake. You know, he was like, he was like, auntie, you know, like, and like, and how has Umar oppressed you? You know, what what has he done to you? And then um, she was like, he's, you know. By Allah, you know, he's, he's wronged us, you know, like he's done, he's done wrong things to us. And, uh, if he was a true king, he would check on the condition of all of his subjects. Then he would find people like me who are going through situations like this. But yet, no, he sits, you know, on his throne and, and he knows nothing about poverty and nothing about what the people are going through. So how could Umar really know about what, what my children are going through or my circumstances? It's not my job to go and inform him of what I'm going through. And then Umar was like, you know, how could he know unless you go and tell him, unless you tell him what the problem is. And she was like, no, 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 no. It's the job of the, of the King to inquire. Right. So he should know what's going on with uh, the problems. So then Umar said to her, you know, auntie, okay, um, you speak the truth. And, but I want you to keep the children distracted, you know, and I'll return shortly, right? But just keep them distracted. So then he, he, he goes out and... Uh, he walked forward and he, he basically, he goes back to, to the palace. And, you know, I should, I should also say, you know, one of his names was, um, ruler or commander really of the faithful. And that was a name that he actually gave himself, uh, commander of the faithful. He gave himself that. So he, this was the level of, uh, respect. And the vision that he had for the people that he ruled over, you know, he considered them 
to be the faithful, right? So again, he goes back to the palace and he goes to the storehouse of the palace and he commanded uh, someone, you know, to give him a bag of flour, uh, which was like, it was, it was enough. It was about a hundred pounds of flour. Uh, he got some buttermilk and he got a couple of things to the point that, you know, he got a jar of, of ghee and he got so much to the point that the flour, the flour was falling all into his beard. Right. And when he's going to take it, the servant in the palace was like, no, let me, let me carry it for you. And Umar was like, you know, uh, what do you, what do you, you think I cannot carry? He said, the people are going through so many, so many trials and are experiencing so many burdens. The least I can do is carry this small burden right now, you know? And he said that I would carry a mountain of iron and it's better to carry a mountain of iron than to have to take account for one unjust act, you know? So he said, and he was saying the unjust act would be me seeing this woman uh, boiling pebbles for her children and for me to ignore it because he's saying what a sin it would be in the eyes of Allah, you know, for me to see something like this and to do nothing. So for me to carry all of these things to this woman is nothing, you know, based in, in contrast to me seeing something so horrible and doing nothing. Okay. So if you can, you can understand that concept and, and the importance that he placed upon carrying the burden himself. You see, carrying that burden. So, you know, then he went back and, and, um, he went to the old woman's, uh, tent. And it was said that by the time he got there, he was like, <laughs> he was severely out of breath. They said that he was panting like an ox. You know, he was so out of breath, but he laid, you know, everything in front of the woman and, and the, the, the jar of ghee. And then, uh, he went and he began to cook the food for the woman. And at that point, the fire had nearly gone out. So he asked the woman, do you have any firewood? And she was like, yeah. And she went and got some firewood. But when she went and got it, the firewood was green. So when he put some of it on, on, you know, so he, he put some of it on the fire and, uh, he set the, he set the fire and everything, but there was so much smoke that the smoke was coming up through his beard, you know, because he was stooping so low, he had to keep blowing on the fire because the wood was green. So he was, it, it, it shows you the amount of labor that's going into, uh, trying to prepare this food. And, and at that time, the, the ghee melted and began to boil and, and he was staring the ghee with one hand and, you know, with a piece of wood and then with the other mixing flour with the ghee. And, you know, he did these things on, until the food was cooked. And uh, <laughs> and then the children rose up and, you know, they were like, you know, they were like screaming <laughs> because there was uh, food ready and there was food to eat. And, uh, you know, he asked the woman for a vessel and, you know, he to put the food in so you know, they, they began to feed, she began to feed the children and everything. And, you know, he stayed there until everybody was fed and everybody was fulfilled and they fell asleep. And then 
Omar, he says to the, to the old woman, he said, you know, I'm a, I'm a cousin of, of, uh, Umar, you know, the commander of the faithful. And I will let him know your situation. So he told the woman, you know, tomorrow come to the palace and look for me there. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what we can do. And, uh, you know, he left her and everything. And, uh, of course the, the story goes on and on and on and on. Um, and, you know, that next day, I should just say, when the woman came through, Umar immediately upon seeing her asked her to forgive him. And he established a pension for that woman for her to be taken care of. Okay. So, and it was a monthly pension. It was, you know, like a, like a, a stipend. So she would be taken care of because she had no covering. So in, in that moment, she, he became a covering. So, Ogun energy. <laughs> you know, this is Ogun through and through when you, if, if you understand the nature and the energy. And like I said, this was an individual who, when he came into power or was selected for power, the people were concerned. They didn't necessarily want him to come into power because of the seriousness of this man. This is a man who at one point aimed to kill the Prophet Muhammad. He was, you know, he was almost like Pa Paul was, you know, uh, with the early followers of the way. You know, he, you know, Paul was a persecutor, you know, of the early followers of of the way and, you know, would even oversee their their executions and, and their torturings, you know. So uh, you could see um uh umar and and similar state right with that similar kind of uh positioning but uh if you know about ogun energies whatever they do they do it to uh perfection so if i'm going to be a villain i'm going to i'm going to put my all into it if i'm going to be a commander i'm going to put my all into it you know whatever it is that i choose to do uh, everything that I have is going into, into that, you know? So, um, you know, again, in honor of, of Ramadan, I wanted to share that story and, uh, you know, share just some of the, the little notes in there. <laughs> Hopefully you picked up on the gems, uh, in terms of not only rulership and, you know, for me, these, these ideas and these concepts and these true stories are very important because a lot of times we have people who will suppose themselves to be uh, leaders and things like that. Or sometimes we suppose them to be leaders because we, we like their energy or we like what it is that they're talking about. Um, and as a result, then we, we begin to say, okay, well, I follow this person. I follow that person. And we don't necessarily, maybe ourselves, understand the qualities of, of a leader. You know, like what the older woman said, if he was a real king, he would be down here trying to find out what's going on with us without realizing, <laughs> well, you're talking to the king who was down here trying to find out what's going on with everyone who walks out here almost every night. See what's going on, but 
you know, how many people can I address at one time? You know, I can, I can get to you when I can get to you, but this is a king who walks with no bodyguards, you know, and who gives zakat or gives charity anonymously. But you're focused on your situation. And for whatever the reason is that you have no husband, you have no brother, you have no father, you have no kinsman, you know, but you have children, right? Which goes into a different kind of uh, discussion. But, you know, first we have to service the need and then we can get to that. And that's an important, that's an important um, concept to consider, especially in times like now where there's so much struggle um, that's coming hasn't even begun yet. You talk about people that the, the the year of ashes, and they called it that because it there was so much drought and it was so dry that uh, people's skin would burn as if there were ashes on their skin, you know, because it was just so hot. So they called it the year of ashes. And um, again, to have a ruler who names himself, you know, Amir Amu Minin. And Amir, Amir Amu Minin, uh, means commander of the faithful, right? So the idea or, or Amu Minin, Minin, you know, but it's, that's of the faithful, the faithful, right? Um, but the idea there again, uh, of how this person is perceiving the people that he has to service. Or has been appointed to service. And even the change in his own disposition. Where he says you know. I will soften myself to help. I, I'm, I'm self aware. And understand who I need to be. And what I need to be. In order to honor this position. That the creator. Or the most high. Has placed me in. You know. So in order to. Really stand for what I'm supposed to be. And to be that true adherent of Allah subhanahu ta'ala, I will make sure that um, I measure my own nature, right? And like I said, a lot of times people um, confuse what leadership is supposed to look like. Um, and no, it's not always someone servicing your every need. You know, it's, it's nothing like that. Um, leadership is leading you somewhere. And if someone says I'm the commander of the faithful, then I'm leading you into a place that should be strengthening your faith, right? Um, but nonetheless, a leader uh, denotes that there's movement. If someone is leading you somewhere, then you should be moving into a certain direction. And uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not calling myself a leader though there are people who say that they follow me. And I know that that's, that's such a loose term today because in social media you have what's called followers, right? So what does it mean? Do you mean like you clicked follow on my profile or clicked like on my profile or you subscribed? Or does it mean that um, the tenants and the character that... I not only model, but teach, you adhere to. And you take in and you say, this is how we live. 
This is how my household lives. This is our culture because this is what we have been taught by the person that we are following. It's a big difference, right? But nonetheless, uh, following requires sacrifice. Leading requires sacrifice. And when you're unwilling to make those sacrifices, then you are unfit for leadership. And you're unfit for followership (laughs) when you are unable or unwilling, which is usually what it is, you're unwilling to make the necessary sacrifices. Okay, so um, you see some excellent um, chronicles here of sacrifice, which we experience throughout Ramadan, uh, the sacrifice. And it's not so hard if you really think about it. It's just, it's mental. You you get up before sunrise, you eat something. Then after sunset, you eat something. So you don't, you, you have a, you have maybe a small gap, maybe 14 hours where you don't eat anything. Okay. It's not really a big deal. Imagine eating bread dipped in oil just once per day or nothing. Someone boiling pebbles to, just distract you until you fall asleep and you falling asleep still with the hunger pains and you still waking up dizzy from hunger pains and nothing but a pot of of pebbles (laughs) still left. You see, so um, the disciplining and the sacrifice become a key thing. And that has to be something that we, especially now we don't have space, time or room to play. You know, a second wave has already hit China. And then they've now gone into a second lockdown. I told you, this is not the last. This is not the last situation. There's plenty more coming. And we're at a time now where you have to examine those you call leaders, whether they're your pastors or your imams or whatever. And you know, this is not a, a a statement of, you know, look at your religion, change your religion. If you pray to Allah, subhanahu wa if that is where you are, or you pray to Yahuwah or whomever, you know, or Ogun or Oshun or Shango or Orumila, um, whomever you are being led by, we're all being led by someone or something, you know, uh, Google isn't, should not be your deity, nor should YouTube be. It's always a sad statement. You, you're like that woman cooking pebbles. When I speak to people and I say, well, you know, who do you study with? Well, I just Google stuff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> do you, in those situations, you don't even know what to Google because you don't know what you're missing. That's always a challenge there. Yeah, you. when a thought comes to mind, well, let me look this up, let me look that. I'm just led by my spirit. Spirits can be confused and crazed. Spirits are not always correct. Most of the time they're not. That's why they're here exploring. There's a spirit of truth. There's a spirit of deception. There's a spirit of ego. There's a spirit of curiosity. There's a spirit of wickedness. So many different spirits. You know, I was... um. I was passing through uh, 
room recently and um not in my home and i saw uh some people they were watch some ch- young children were watching transformers right and um they're supposed to be children who are supposed to be of a righteous family which they are so i'm not i'm saying supposed to but so they were watching this transformers thing and i saw unicron Transformers. Uh, maybe I'll do a breakdown one day on that because Transformers is so has so much stuff in it. It's like you could do several shows on Transformers. Even the songs, you know, when all hell breaks loose, you'll be riding on the eye of the storm. Hmm. You only knew what that meant. Um, but there was an image of Unicron, and I looked and I said, "Oh, that's Molek." Right, I just glanced real quick, and they were like Molek. I was like, "Yeah, look, you can't see, you don't see the horns." And that's Molek. Unicron is what the eater of worlds. What was what was Molek? The eater of children, like Baal, right? But you know, you're looking at Molek right there, which was the the one of our earlier ideas of um, child sacrifice, right? So that's what Unicron represents, right? And, um, you know, there were other ones in other cartoons as well, but you always see those horns and they eat worlds, you know. Um, there was another one back in the days in um, uh, Marvel Universe. It wasn't Thanos, it was a different one. But, you know, another another time. But that was the one who had empowered the Silver Surfer. Can't remember the name right now. But, um,. Anyway, like I was saying, so uh, this is a time now where we we have to really be a little bit a little bit more serious about what it is that we're saying we stand for, and not necessarily Galactus. <laughs> I'm sorry, I knew it was gonna pop into my head. <laughs> it was Galactus back in the days because Galactus is the one who gave Silver Surfer. Uh, the metallic skin and everything gave him his powers. But Galactus was the eater of worlds, you know? Um, and again, you see that horned helmet. You're looking at Molek, right? The eater of children. But anyway, cartoon breakdowns another time. So, um, you know, this is an opportunity for us to really Again, look at uh, character. Uh, Abu Bakr was known for his character, great character. Uh, was the caliph only for two years, you know, because he 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 developed a fever. What happened was he, he had a fever and then he died. And in his last days, it was his wife, Aisha, who took care of him, you know. And he was buried next to the Prophet Muhammad, you know, uh, again, his friend. But there was this... One of the reasons that he was buried there because he would he said that um, a prophet should be buried where he dies, you know, and um, so Prophet Muhammad was buried where he died, right? So very interesting thing there when you just think about sometimes the times and where we find ourselves. So many of us are sitting in in um, jobs or in neighborhoods and and homes that we don't we don't want to live in. <laughs> We don't enjoy, we don't like walking around our neighborhood or, you know, seeing our neighbors, you know, when we, we t- 
time ourselves coming out of our doors so we don't have to see people and things like that. Well, imagine if where you are right now is where you were buried. If you if you followed that same credo that, you know, well, this is for a profit, but let's just say you took it, that, you know, I will be buried where I die. You know, um, and Umar, of course, was also buried besides the grave of uh, Prophet Muhammad. But um, let's just say if you took that credo, you'd have to really take an honest look at, you know, do I really love where I live? And am I willing to die here? Is this my place of retirement? And if not, maybe I need to make some more serious decisions now about what my life looks like and where I'm being led to. Or if I'm being led nowhere, if I'm being led nowhere, you know, if I'm following certain ideologies and certain people and certain concepts and it's bringing me nowhere and bringing us nowhere, will I end up like the woman with no kinsman, no father, no brother, you know, and no husband, no covering with a bunch of children and now depending and relying on the state that I, at the same time I'm complaining about? Will I end up being like that? Am I like that now? How many people I know, you know, and and females I know that have very vile things to say about the father or fathers of their children. And sometimes I have to remind them that if you didn't have welfare and food stamps, you'd be in the same position as them, maybe worse. He doesn't work. He doesn't do this. He ain't got no job. He ain't got no money. Neither do you. <laughs> you just have the state taking care of you. You you are the same um Vagrant <laughs> that he is. He just doesn't have the support that you have. So um, with that concept of marriage and purposeful child rearing and childbirthing, it becomes even more critical that we start to look at the webs that we're able to create through the functioning of, of sane family and how we can create brotherhoods and how we create sisterhoods and, and parenthoods. You know, when we choose wisely and we choose with a with a mission because we're being led towards a certain mission. When you read the Anu way and it says that Anu people should mate with Anu people, that's not a suggestion. That is not a suggestion. That's a directive. That is a directive. You know, I had a conversation with a man the other day. And he was talking about the value of foreign women. And how he found that North American women just really lack politeness and decorum and softness, you know, and and overall, a lot of times just class. And uh, I agreed with him on many points. I said, yeah, you know, a lot of times foreign women, the value that they they have is that they, they really celebrate femininity and a lot of. Females in North America, they run away from femininity. That's why it's so easy for males to fall in, fall into relationships with, uh, other males who pretend to be females because at least they're striving to be feminine. But I said, here's the important thing that you need to understand. Well, I didn't say that you need to understand, but I said, I just made a statement. I said, yeah, you're right. I said, there's, there's a serious problem and it's been going on since the 60s, you know, since really the the, the, the serious introduction and introduction of the welfare state into the urban communities. Because the welfare state had already been going on in rural communities, but it was just called subsidies. 
you know, farm subsidies and stuff. But I said that other kind of plan, you know, um, created a monster in the community. But I said, um, but the North American woman is the best mate for the North American man. <laughs> and that paused him for a moment. He said, well, what do you, what do you mean? You know, with all the problems, what do you mean? I said, who else understands you? Who else understands what you go through? Who else understands your struggle? Who else has the economic sophistication that you require to really build your empire than the North American female? You know, so I said, yeah, it's, it's, it's ugly. It's looking real ugly out here. It's very difficult to find a suitable, uh, feminine counterpart. It's looking really, really bad. But, um, one of the things that you have to understand is that people want to be with their own. So when you go to foreign countries and you scooping up females, a lot of times they're conjoining with you because they've been forced into a corner the same way you've been forced into a corner. They would rather not be with you. They would, they would rather that their children represent their lineage, you know, and not be, um, mixed plain and simple. Right. Um, but people have been forced into a corner, you know, so your best mate still comes from where you're from. Even with all the ugliness, it just means that you have to search harder. You have to be more creative and more inventive and finding a good one, you know. But if you have foreign lovers, that's, you know, it is what it is. I, I understand that. But it doesn't mean that, you know, m- the best mate doesn't mean the only mate. You might have... um women that you deal with or that you're made it to far, you know, foreign, but to understand the best one is going to be the one that's with you. And it's always a sad occurrence when you cannot conjoin with your best mate because of social engineering. But anyway, so that is our, um, that is our tribute. <laughs> I would say to Abu Bakr as well as, um, Umari bin Al-Khattab. And, um, you know, again, closing out this Ramadan this year. Um, and I'm sure for many of you, it has been a beautiful experience, if not at least a learning one, right? At least a learning one. And I will that uh, you start really thinking strongly about who it is that you're conjoined with in web and move beyond, as I've been saying probably for, at least since I've been on the internet 10 years or so, um, at least um, when I say on the internet, doing podcasts and whatnot, that you move beyond uh, this digital medium. It will not be here forever, but I will that you, and I know many of you won't, you like hiding. This is like the movie surrogates. You like hiding in your apartments or in your house somewhere behind the screen. You don't want anybody to see you. I know that. You know, many of you will be found half eaten by your house pets. You know, that's just your what it is for you. But those of you who uh, have a bit more foresight, I will that you work and do everything you can to to take this from the digital to the analog world, because there there's a time coming where you will not have such easy access. Don't take it for granted that you will have such easy access all the time to digital once. Once you finish completely downloading your brain, your thought, your likes, your angers into social media 
and you've completely built up that uh that mind of unicron you know um it won't really need you anymore to do any more downloads you won't have anything left so that's when your access will be restricted because yeah we got everything we need to know you you ain't grown anymore we've we've developed the algorithm that that we needed to um to to develop you know and now we've built brainiac <laughs> you know so uh yeah you can go about your way now and no more free social media so i i really just will that you make the serious efforts to not only create family but those of you who take it seriously and understand that what you need to fix within yourself to be eligible for that your demand is not enough uh, i need to be covered or i need a woman that's not so what <laughs> you know um are you eligible for that and these are the things that you know i knew was leading you into some of the things just some of the it's like the basics it's not even the deeper stuff um but sometimes you need a leader like um abu bakir who may be a little more soft-hearted but is able to represent the faith in a very strong way and the teachings because he grew up with the prophet you know first convert you know um arguably but then you need sometimes that strong hand of a of a umar ibn to also tell you that hey we we can't play with you right now you know there's serious things happening and serious things going on and no one has a time to be sitting here playing with you you're playing and you're going to die because you're playing but i consider those who are under my steed to be pious and to be faithful and i take that charge seriously and to ignore that need or to ignore that responsibility would be the, of the greatest sin against my deity right so there are different people who emerge at different times for different reasons and you have to kind of be in tune with the challenges to in order to be able to recognize the solutions all right so uh this has been chief you yeah i'm going to lead you out with um a little meditation that I that I've been uh playing with. Uh I'm gonna play it for you and we're gonna close out with that and maybe it will help you to meditate a little bit. Just a little um some of you know I, I kinda toy with music a little bit. <laughs> no, let me not say that. That's disrespectful. I'm I'm you know, that's false humility. Um music is very important to me. It's it's a very important part of what I am. And what you hear all the time So it's actually um, Sometimes I actually make songs Just for me You know, I, I, I make songs Most of what I do now is for um, film You know, it's most of the, the work that I do now But uh, there's a lot of times I make music Just for my own healing And I made something um, It might have been 20 2011 Ramadan, <laughs> something like that. And I found uh, the file recently and I was listening to it. And as I was meditating and moving around and walking and I said, okay, maybe I'll share this one. All right. So I'm going to share this with you all and um, I will see you for our next podcast. All right. So everyone be well, continue to be wise 
and, um, you know, continue to monitor and pay close attention to what it is and who it is that you are choosing to follow and be a subject to. All right. Peace.